Wonderful to worship the Lord with you on this very chilly but sunshiny day. Let's ask for his help as we turn to his word and prepare our hearts for the table. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, in Jesus' mighty name, by his Spirit, I come to you and say with Mary, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to your word. May it be to us. According to your word, let your word from Luke 1 run on in triumph and achieve its good purposes in our hearts right now. Strengthen believers, forgive sinners, lavish grace upon us all, give direction for those confused, give wisdom to those struggling with understanding, give place for those who feel awkward and without home, give joy to those who are battling with dark nights of the soul and despondency and despair give great power to the weak and do this and so many more things than I can even imagine to ask. Strengthen your church, equip us to be bold, faithful witnesses for Christ, enable us to be faithful to you even at the cost of our lives. Bless all the work of the kingdom in this faith family and beyond Let all the churches who are gathering in our region at this time be anointed afresh with the power of the living God to proclaim the word of Christ without fear. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. At the fullness of time, 400 years after God was silent and without prophetic voice, he sends an angel into this dark and bleak world to a priest named Zechariah as he's ministering inside the Holy of Holies as an appointed priest burning incense and offering offerings to the Lord. The priest Zechariah was an old man and the angel struck fear in his heart but brought him good news. He said, you and your elderly wife who is barren Elizabeth will have a son and you call his name John. It means God has been gracious to you. It almost sounds like a cruel joke. Wars and rumors of wars were going on at the time of Zechariah's priestly ministry. Violence and hatred, man's inhumanity to man, was both constant and merciless during the time of John and Jesus' birth announcements. Spiritual and emotional and social darkness covered the known world very much like it is today. It's not worse today than it was then. It's probably not worse then than it is today. There are evil hatreds between ethnicities. There are hatreds between men and women. There are hatreds on the earth of all sorts and kinds. And the solutions for those hatreds that reject the gospel only make those hatreds worse. Zechariah says, and you want me to have a son in my old age and with my wife in her old age whose very presence is constantly to remind me that God, this is what you call grace? Zechariah's unbelief was sin. The last words he heard before nine months of being deaf and mute were those of the angel, and behold, you'll be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Silence. Perfect, complete silence. Nothing from his own voice nor any other sound entered his ears, but in his heart, faith. 
Belief. Hope. Light. I can't hear and I can't talk means he really means business and he's done a miracle in me. This is my sign. That really was an angel. I'm really going to conceive with Elizabeth and we will really have a son and his name will be John. Sometimes the punishments of God among his beloved seem too big, over the top, too painful, extreme. And yet they're the very means by which God gives us light. He loves and disciplines his own children because he loves them. It's interesting that John's name includes a very important element of time. When John is born, his name doesn't mean God is gracious to us. Oh, God was gracious to Elizabeth and to Zechariah in giving them the child when they were barren and they had had no children. What a grace that was to that couple. But that's not what John's name means. It means John, God has been gracious to us. The time frame is important. God in the past, even through the 400 years of darkness, has been gracious to us. What he's saying to Zechariah and Elizabeth and all with ears to hear is that even in the deepest darkness, God is still gracious and he's still being gracious. In your darkness, you might look to your past and say, that was dreadful, that was horrible, that was ugly. I hope I don't ever have to go through something like that again. But what will happen when the eyes of faith open is you will look back on your past and you will say, God was even gracious to me then. If you're in a time of darkness right now, if you're in a time of sorrow, if you look upon the world in all its strife and political upheaval, if you look upon hatred of every sword and stripe and it grieves you, if you're struggling because you've heard a serious health diagnosis or you've lost a loved one recently and the darkness seems to be lurking like like prowling coyotes seeking to grab you on the periphery of your life, Recognize that God is being gracious to you now and he has been gracious to you even in the times of your darkness. God has been gracious to us, says the name John to Eliza and Zeke. Even in darkness, God is gracious to us. So Isaiah prophesies in chapter 9, and we just heard powerfully read, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Evidently, God likes to paint on the, on the canvas of history a jet black background so that when he puts on the beauty of the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness found in him, he shines all the brighter. John's birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth was in fact a great grace, but God was achieving so much more than blessing this elderly priestly couple. God is gracious to create in them an ache and a longing that was a signal of the great longing of Israel. He was gracious to pour out his blessing on the world spinning and the weather unfolding, sun shining and rain falling, crops growing, rivers flowing, gravity pulling and truth persisting. God is gracious always and in ways that our eyes of unbelief cannot see. Yet in His grace, He's withholding wrath, even much deserved wrath, from the world during that 400 years, from the time when John and Christ are born, and from today's date as well. Even in Zechariah's quiet deafness and silent tongue, 
this aged law-abiding priest, as he watches his wife's belly grow larger and larger, even in those quiet smiles and hugs full of wonder, there was great grace. The darkness in that day and the darkness in our day have one solution and one solution alone. It's the mighty, powerful, boundless, unstoppable, unthwartable grace of Almighty God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that worked with me. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Grace is power. What will it be like for the church in 2022 to be made more weak than we are yet, so that we might boast in the great power of God's grace in us? What will it be like in your life as he leads you into weakness? As he leads me and my family and this church family and believers around the world into weakness so that his power and grace might be made perfect in us. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And now the announcement to Mary shows the very grace has been at work as well. Even without knowing it, Mary has been a recipient of grace long before the angel arrived, and she's a recipient of grace even as he speaks to her. How much grace has God shown to you and me personally in the past? Is there a way to quantify? Could we make like a grace unit, call it a G? How many Gs has God shown you? How much grace has God given to you? How much grace has God given to the landing? How much grace has God given to me? Mary is this graced one. Let's look at the grace that the angel proclaims to Mary. And it's not just present grace, it's past. Listen carefully. In the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. The angel Gabriel was sent from God. This is the most important messenger sending God has ever made and ever shall make. This is the most important angel, Gabriel, who stands next to God and hears from God, sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, the most armpit place on the planet. Nobody cares about Nazareth and certainly not Galilee. To an unimportant person, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. This is not a man or a woman engaged in a priestly line like Elizabeth and Zechariah. No, this is just Joseph engaged to a woman named Mary, probably a teenager. The angel Gabriel, in his most important divine mission sent by God, at the perfect time, Elizabeth is six months pregnant, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. It literally means greetings, O perfectly graced one. 
Favored is way too weak. It's grace with a perfect prefix on it. It means greetings, O highly and perfectly graced one, Mary. No wonder she opened her eyes and wondered what in the world he was saying to her. Who knows what Gabriel looked like, but no angel comes to talk to a woman like Mary. And then he speaks long-term, perfectly established grace to you, and now the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. Surely that's a sign that she knows she's unworthy of an angel speaking to her or of God declaring grace to her. Many scholars say, and I think there's weight to it, and isn't this just delightful, we who know this? Oh, I hope you feel and know this. That if you've got the rest of the Old Testament sort of lurking in the back of your mind, and you read the angel saying, grace to Mary, O favored one, or perfectly graced one, the Lord is with you, that it's so very similar to 800 years before God hearing the cries of a godly woman named Hannah, whose name means grace. And, and here, translating this Greek word into Hebrew would say, greetings, O Hannah one. Oh, this is so good. This is the way God talks to you. You get troubled because you think the grace of God is so wonderful and so great that if it, if it actually exposed the depths of your life, you would say, grace for everybody except this one or that one because you're so dark and beyond grace. Oh, no, dear one. There's infinitely more grace in God than there is sin in you. She was troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, for you have found, yes, there it is again, grace with God. Favor is way too weak. Mary was not from a priestly family. She was a mere teenage girl. She wasn't married, but only engaged. She had no wealth or standing in the community or in God's eyes, nor does she have anything in her life to commend or merit or earn good standing with God. The angel Gabriel, sent by God himself on the most important mission God has ever sent any angel on, was to herald the entrance of God into the world, and he would come now to speak grace to Mary, not once but twice, because by Mary's own body, in her womb, the Spirit would conceive the Son of God in her. He says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. You've already been graced. You have already been, as John's name says, the Lord has already been gracious to you. Your whole life, Mary, is the grace of God leading up to this moment. The same is true for you and me. The, the wonder that happens to believers when we find ourselves overwhelmed with grace is not that just there's forgiveness for today's sins, but that there's forgiveness for all the sins I may commit in the future and there's forgiveness for all the sins I've committed in the past. There's grace not only for what I forget today or what I neglect tomorrow, but there's grace for all the good I've left undone in my past. It's terrifying how big the grace of God is. And here the angel speaks it twice to Mary. The angel doesn't build her self-esteem. The angel doesn't say, oh, don't forget, Mary. Don't forget you were, you were perfectly conceived yourself or you have no sin in you. He doesn't say any such things. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found Favor, unmerited favor and grace with God. You have been graced by God, so don't fear 
You see, twice the angel comes to proclaim grace to Mary, but if Mary gets that grace because she somehow had virtue or merit within her, then the entire gospel is exploded as error. She comes to this conversation with the angel Gabriel and he speaks grace to her because she is as undeserving of God in her life as you and I or anyone. Paul said so plainly to the Galatians, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died of no purpose. And to the Romans he said, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Do not nullify the grace of God to Mary by propping her up in a way the Bible never does. So with you and I, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Why? To the praise of His glorious, you say it, grace. Let's try that again. To the praise of His glorious grace. which he gave to us in the beloved. By grace we are chosen, saved, made holy, predestined, adopted, and all this achieves God's will to the praise of his glorious grace. There's no wonder that there is a heart of worship that wells up within us to bow low before this Christ and say, we and, and Mary and Ezekiel, or rather Zechariah and Elizabeth, none of them deserve to have these glorious graces happen in their lives. We rather deserve for the world to go on in its 400-year bleak, benighted darkness and to continue century after century, millennia after millennia, until finally our sins are completed and God judges us. Note the grace of God that has been declared to Mary, both in the name of John and in these two all-powerful verbs that the angel sent by God offers to her and to us. And notice the origin and the warrant and the worth of where such grace comes from. The, the outline of this passage is best captured in the way Mary is not the centerpiece, neither John nor Elizabeth or Zechariah are the centerpiece Gabriel himself isn't even the centerpiece. In fact, he five times declares the Son to be the centerpiece, and he gives him five names. Look at verse 31, And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. His name will be Jesus because he's going to save us from this darkness. He's going to die upon a cross and wipe away our guilt and forgive us our sins and give to us God's righteousness. And this dark world will have light shining in it. Oh, the need for light in our lives even now. None can save from within this world. God must enter from without and become one of us in order that he might be fully God and fully man. And his name is Jesus, that he might die upon a cross and save us from our sins. The angel Gabriel goes on and says, he will be great. Only God is called great. Psalm 77, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like you? 
Psalm 86, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. But now the son born and conceived in Mary is called great. He will be great, meaning Jesus is supreme at his birth. He is the fountain of grace because he is all greatness, all supremacy, all height and worth and glory. Acts 4.33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Where does great grace come from? It comes from a great Savior. I sat at my dad's funeral eight years ago, knowing full well the kind of man he was, a borrowed phrase from John Newton. My father was a great sinner, beloved of a great Savior. I stand before you a great sinner, beloved of a great Savior. Jesus Christ is our great Savior, and He comes to save a world full of great sinners. Diminishing the sin does nothing to exalt the Savior. The angel goes on, He will be Son of the Most High. Son of God, he repeats it again in verse 32, he sa- in verse 35, Son of God, Son of the Most High is another way of saying Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity. See the Trinity in action. The Holy Spirit in, in the third person of the Trinity comes to overshadow this teenager. She's scared, she's trembling, what will happen to her? And yet she receives and, and humbly submits to the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. Oh, that teens in, in this age and every age would be lit on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit for massive witness across the stage of human and world history. And yet it's to conceive the Son in Mary. And oh, how the Holy Spirit means to conceive the Son in you and in me. And the Father God has sent the angel to declare it all. So here the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is zeroing in on this forgettable little town called Nazareth and this uncommendable young teenager named Mary, Son of the Most High, We do not mean or understand this verse to teach that somehow a being is born inside Mary who becomes God when the Holy Spirit overshadows her. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, that's an error of the first order. Rather, what the Bible teaches and we believe is that the second person of the Trinity who has been eternally God comes to take on flesh in Mary's womb, remaining fully God, now fully man as well. And that as he lived and died and rose, ascending to the Father's right hand, he never removes his body from himself again, fully God and fully man forever. Mind-blowing glory. Verse 32 and 33, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. So he's not only Jesus He's not only the Son of God and great, He's the King over Israel, but not just ethnic Israel. Luke knows full well how just mere chapters later in chapter 13, he will explain how the true Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is broader and encompasses the globe. Jesus is correcting error and talking about 
the salvation that he proclaims. And he says in verse 28 through 30 of Luke 13, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, talking about hell. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all alive before God, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God still alive before God, but you yourselves who've rejected me will be cast out. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. The kingdom of Israel, over which Christ, this king, will reign, is not a narrow ethnic group of Jewish people. It is, in fact, a global kingdom, a multi-ethnic kingdom, a singular culture of God-saturated persons loving Christ from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, as we heard some weeks ago, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Christ's kingdom is global. And it is from this king who rules over all the earth on his throne forever, who freely dispenses grace to all who come and seek it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the king's throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Finally, he calls the child born to Mary holy. Holy means devoted Don't fall prey to the idea that holy means separate. Separate is just an entailment of what holy means. Holy means devoted. Devoted. God is utterly devoted to himself. He would be an idolater if he's devoted to anyone lesser than himself. But it's God being devoted to himself that means he has the overflow and the outpouring of this salvation, the sending of his son, the dispensing of a ocean of grace to a needy world and the gathering of his people to himself. John 17, 5 Christ is utterly devoted to the Father as we are to be as well. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are devoted to yourself and we are devoted to you also. From the supreme, utterly devoted life of Christ, comes the gracious words of life to all who will hear. Finally, look how Mary responds. Every time I meditate on this passage, I love Mary's response more and more. First, when the angel greeted her, she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. How could it be? I want to think orderly and clearly. I want to know the truth. How could I, a woman who should never hear from an angel lest I die, hear from God's highest most powerful angel, Gabriel. Her humility and clear-minded honor to God seeks in her to reason out what's happening to her. And then notice the purity of her faith. The angel tells her, you'll conceive in your womb the Son of God named Jesus, King over Jacob. And she has no willingness to sin and no interest whatsoever in violating the law. So in purity and in boldness, she asks, Not a question of unbelief, but a question assuming the absolute truthfulness of what the angel says, but a desire to know just how it might occur. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? She uses the Greek future, which we get translated in English, the word will this be 
She's not questioning that it will be. She's just asking, if I'm not a kind of a woman who's going to sin to make this happen, if I'm not the kind of person who's going to use sin to get God's will done, if I'm not the kind of person to give away honor and purity and righteousness just to get what I want or just to get some religious outcome that you say will happen, how will this occur knowing that it will indeed come to pass. And the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This word overshadow is a rare word. It's used three times by each of the gospel writers for the description of the glory of the Lord shining through Christ's transfiguration. The veil came off of his humanity for just a moment, and to Peter, James, and John, he shows himself as magnificently glorious. See, I didn't lay any glory by. Great song, Mr. Wesley, just a little tweaking. It's the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament that silenced everybody in the presence of the temple when the glory of the Lord settled like a cloud down upon the people. You know the highest expression of worship isn't with your mouth or with your body. It's absolute silence. And the glory of the Lord settles powerfully on you. And you're doing business with the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who very sustains every one of the eight thoughts per second that occur in your mind and keeps your heart beating and rules the entire universe around you in all its stunning com complexity and wonder in order that you might know him, in order that you might be forgiven, in order that you might be, belong to him and love him. The glory of the Lord overshadows Mary. Like the Shekinah glory comes down, and she's wondering, knowing full well what Exodus 33 means, can I see the glory of God? Can the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit of God come upon me and I live? That's her first question. Am I greater than Moses who was told you can't see the glory of God and live? Humility requires she would never presume she's greater than Moses. How can I be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit of God to conceive a child and still live? Maybe I am willing to die. Am I willing to be humiliated and shamed and dishonored as a pregnant teenager walking around my community? Am I willing to bring dishonor and shame and lies and misunderstanding to my betrothed, my beloved Joseph? Everyone will think he's an evil, unholy, impure man, and I know he's not. But what of my family? What cost there is in Mary responding positively to this? No, you've got to pick some other girl. I'm, I, I think I just remembered I have stuff to do. Behold. Means look at me. Look at me. I am the servant of the Lord. I know who I am. My identity is clear. Greatest gift any one of you could have out of this service today is to know who your identity is in Christ as you walk out of here. 
Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If there's one sentence in the Bible you should memorize and take as your entire life verse in the prayer you pray multiple times every day, it's this one. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I wonder if you can say that prayer for yourself right now. Mary's bold and risky faith is rooted in her God-given identity as a servant of the living God. So settle it in your heart once and for all. Settle it in your heart once and for all. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. I want to be so full of the Lord that my life is beaming and shining and obviously in love with Him like a pregnant teenager walking around. No doubt who I love. No doubt who fills up my life. No doubt who I want you to see in me. Behold, says everyone in this room in your spirit and in a moment in prayer. Behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And as a sweet gift of grace, God's active grace in Mary's life, he gives to her a friend, a sweet friend who's going through the same thing. Aging Elizabeth, who six six months now is pregnant, just enough for Mary to see her from a distance and say, oh my goodness, you too. We've been praying for you, Elizabeth, for so long, haven't we? And there you are, ready to have a baby. And oh, how he kicks. The fountain of joy, wonder and faith, rising in Elizabeth and in Mary to encourage each other. We're both big with Christ. We're both filled up with Christ. We both want to make Christ and His glory and His kingdom and His gospel the most obvious thing about us. Oh, let it be known that the people of the Word and the people of the gospel at the landing in every faithful church on the planet would be more interested in honoring Christ by having Him known in their lives than whatever anybody ever cares to say about us ever again. You're going to have to get used to obeying scared. You're going to have to get used to obeying, knowing that someone's going to hate your guts for it. They're going to lie about you. They're going to try to kill you. They're going to try to take privileges away from you. They're going to gossip about you because the very thing that defines your life, I'm a servant of the Lord, is what they hate most about you. How kind is God to give a sweet friend like Elizabeth six months further along down the road to say, it's going to be good, Mary. You're not going to die. And you'll be okay. And that future husband of yours, he's going to do the right thing. Mine's doing fine. God's grace has been, is, and shall always overcome every darkness you may ever enter into or have lived through. God's grace has, is, and shall overcome every darkness this church ever has or shall enter into. God's grace has, is, and shall overcome every darkness that His church around the world has or shall ever enter into. Not very long after Zeke and Beth's boy John was born, Zeke wrote a poem for his boy. 
You can imagine, can't you, a beaming father with his son on his lap reciting a poem he had written himself for his own son? Even more, as Zechariah, the grace and forgiveness that he experienced while his wife was pregnant, and as soon as he, in boldness, wrote on a tablet, his name is John, his voice returned miraculously, Zechariah enjoys now hearing the sound of his own voice as he recites this poem to his son. And he enjoys hearing the laughter and the sounds of his son and those around him. All while speaking to his son the very grace of God that God has lavished upon Zechariah and proves to Zechariah every single day through the happy running around and climbing up into his arms of little John. And so here's what Zechariah, the father, says to his little boy, just the last few verses. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Oh, Zechariah knows grace. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. We come, Lord, to this table now, fully depending on the reality of your grace and the forgiveness of our sins. We come to this table in full agreement that we were not worthy of your work in our lives. Like Mary, we dare not nullify the grace of God. We simply say, Lord, we are your servants. Let it be to us as you have said in your word. Would you bless us to come to this table with joy in our hearts and yet also trembling? Would you cause us to obey scared? To give the appropriate weight and joy and thankfulness and worship that the elements of the table and your death and resurrection which they represent deserve. Gather your people, Lord. Unite us together in joy the way Elizabeth and Mary were united in their witness for Christ. And embolden us. There's a whole world out there that needs strong-voiced people to sing out in public in the cold of night the carols of the gospel of the arrival of the sun. And 10,000 other ways where outreach is filled with the word, for it's by the word that faith comes through hearing. Lord, I pray your blessing now upon our gathered worship and the height of this moment as we take of the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.